0: verses 11 through 14 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us pray. And now, Father, as we look into your inspired word, may you, as as has already been prayed, give us hearts to hear. Give me a mouth to speak it clearly. And may it be for our instruction our repentance, our edification, and most of all, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in evil times. It won't shock you if I say that. Uh, Most recently, a month ago, we were really oppressed, I think, to be told that we must affirm and applaud and take pride in what God says is shameful. And the thing about it was our government, many corporations, much of academia, even even, uh, professional sports kind of gathered together to to tell us that we ought to be affirming that. And that's just one example. If we turned this into a discussion group right now, you could come up with a hundred other examples of how we live in evil times. But we must avoid feeling sorry for ourselves. If we were to bring Abraham back or Daniel or Paul and kind of describe what I just said, what would they say? They'd say, oh, we get that. We've been there, done that. We understand that, what it is to live in evil times. And it really ought to encourage us to realize that much, maybe maybe we should say all of the Bible, was written, two and four saints who lived in evil times. It's not as though this is some new uh, experience, something new under the sun. One side of our discussion would be how do we push back against that? How do we engage our culture? That's not my subject this morning. Um, It's a worthy subject. But my subject is how do we live in these present evil times? And that's what I think our text is talking about really living godly lives between as we'll see what Paul says are the two epiphanies of Christ, the two appearances of Christ, his first and his second coming. And I think we can get at what our passage is teaching us if we ask and try to answer three questions. First of all, why should we live godly lives? Uh, What's our motivation? Secondly, what does a godly life look like? Um, What can we say about it uh, that God calls us to live? And then third, where does the power to live a godly life come from? And I hope to answer these questions, and I think our text speaks to them. Why are we called to live godly lives? And Paul uses a simple but profound and wonderful phrase to answer that question. Why should we live godly lives? For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God, um, and there's the language of epiphany. It has appeared in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it, It is light shining in a dark place. That word is used elsewhere in scripture to describe the stars shining in the sky. Uh, that language is used by um, Zechariah as he announces the birth and the coming of not just his son, but the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, that's the language of epiphany, of the appearance of the grace of God. And let us note from our text that it is distinctively a saving grace. This world, I think we could legitimately say needs many things, uh, education and healthcare and good governance, and those are all legitimate things for Christians to think about. But above all, what this world needs is salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Salvation from the consequences of our sins. Salvation from the wrath of God, in a sense, as the late R.C. Sproul used to say, we need to be saved from God himself, and then for God. Grace has appeared, bringing salvation, as Paul says, To all people. There is a free offer of the gospel. Made to all. Prominently he has in mind. If we look at his other writings. and We won't do that right now. Jew and Gentile. Not just to Jews. First of all to Jews. But also to Gentiles. And by implication. We can say to men and women and children. Of every skin color. If you want to put it that way. Men women and children of every culture. Yes even to Cretans. Those evildoers, even to modern day Americans. In church history, Epiphany has been recognized at times, and I'm not advocating for the church calendar, but I'm simply saying it's a recognition. What was Epiphany a recognition of? It was the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. And what's the point of that? That the light of the gospel, has now begun to shine even unto the Gentiles. And then, says Paul, this grace of God, that's, this is our motive, then, for living uh, a godly life, uh, being grateful for the grace of God, being grateful for the free gift of salvation in him. This grace, then, notice the word, verse 12, trains us. Child trains us, instructs us, what? To live godly lives. To live lives in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And let me say, and this can't be emphasized enough, the call to live a godly life is a blessing, it's not a burden. I've lived long enough to know that certain phrases in Scripture come in in and out of fashion among Christian people. And I think, I don't know, in some sections of the church, godliness has kind of gone out of fashion. We don't seem to talk about that. Um, And uh, I'm I'm sure there are reasons for that. But we shouldn't shy away from that. I suppose some feel that if you talk too much about godliness, that's a burden and uh, you're going to be in danger of being legalistic. But the Bible talks a lot about godliness. And grace and godliness, my point is, are not enemies. They're friends. Godliness flows from grace and then back to grace, giving thanks to God for that uh, dear gift of his son. Um, So let's consider then that uh, what this grace trains us to do. And again, uh, Paul was a preacher, so he uses three points at times, but three sub-points. We'll see what this grace trains us to do. The godly life is marked by what we renounce, by what we practice, and by what we wait for. If we could consider each of these briefly. First of all, the grace of God appearing and the mark of the, of the, of the godly life is, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce is a very striking word that Paul uses. It's the same word that the Gospels use to describe Peter's denial of Christ. I never knew him, he said with a curse. That kind of renunciation is now turned to say this is what we Christians are to do in response to the grace of God to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In in some baptismal historic baptismal liturgies of the church, the minister asks the person being baptized or the parents who are bringing their their child to be baptized, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I think that's a wonderful and powerful question. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the grace of God instructs us to do to renounce Satan and all his works, to renounce ungodliness and worldly desire or worldly passions. Calvin says this ungodliness is irreligious neglect of God. Uh, What I think was David Wells from Gordon Seminary used to say, the, uh, the weightlessness of God. I think that's a memorable phrase. Most people, perhaps, that we would meet in our daily lives, they may or may not deny the existence of God. It's not so much that as it is that God is simply fairly weightless in their lives. He's not that important. He's not weighty. Uh, he's not someone really to be taken seriously, certainly not To be feared. That's ungodliness. We're to renounce that. We're to live in the fear of God. And we're to renounce, as Paul says, worldly passions. And of course, in this day and age, our minds might first go to uh, sexual passions, and it's right to think about that. We are awash in, in sexual immorality. Um, I have I've really wanted to go see the movie Oppenheimer, and I was talking to one, one of the young ladies in the church. She's like a 20-year-old. Yesterday, she said, oh, I went with my brothers to see that, and we had to hide our faces from several different scenes. We just couldn't watch it. Oh, great. Um, but that's the world we live in, is it not? But as I was thinking about um, worldly passions, I think we also have to think about self-love which is kind of promoted as the highest of the virtues, is it not? We are told at every turn uh, that we are above all to love ourselves and care for ourselves and take care of ourselves. And I'm not saying there's nothing to that. We are each fearfully and wonderfully made, and we can thank God for that and recognize that, that we have gifts and graces. I don't dispute that, but probably we shouldn't call it self-love. Clearly, what Scripture calls us to love, whom whom Scripture calls us to love, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. As St. Augustine said, we need to get those loves properly ordered as a way of rejecting um, ungodly passions. Well, this grace of God then trains us in what we renounce. Then it trains us in what we practice. And notice it says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. To live in a self-controlled way is the very opposite, the very antithesis of worldly passions. And self-control is not merely a self-effort. It's certainly something that the Holy Spirit, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit who enables us to do that but it's so easy, in fact, we're almost encouraged to be out of control, are we not? We are, says Paul, to live self-controlled lives, not lives of excess. We are to be upright, and what Paul means there is living according to the will of God, obeying God's moral law, obeying God's commandments, again, There are certain views of sanctification today that seem to minimize that, to sort of say that that's not what we're to do. That's contrary to grace, to talk about obeying God's immoral commandments. Who says, whose Bible are they reading? Here Paul says it very clearly. The godly life, the grace life, is to be one of self-control. It's to be one that is to be upright and godly. We might say God-centered God-focused, to glorify and enjoy God, as our catechism says, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to be imitators of God. As you meditate on your life, and I hope you'll take these words away with you this afternoon, how does your life measure up in what Paul calls us to by the gospel? Grace trains us in what we renounce and what we practice and then in what we wait for. Verse 13, as we live these lives, we are waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been called the blessed hope. And here's here's epiphany language again. We've received the grace of the gospel that changes our lives in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And living a perfect life on our behalf and dying on the cross and rising again. And now we wait for yet another epiphany. For the second appearing. The blessed hope. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he describes Christians in this way. They are those who love his appearing. Isn't that a wonderful description of a Christian? Are you one of those? Do you love his appearing? I, confess I don't think about it as much as I should. I get too locked in to what's right in front of my nose and how I should be looking for the blessed hope. Because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if our hope is only in this life, we're pitiful. Why should we go to all the trouble of seeking to live these godly lives if it's only for this life? Why not eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? No, we are waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a little bit of a translation and textual issue with verse 13. Some other translations uh, put it a little bit differently, but I think the ESV gets it right. Uh, Paul is not here talking about God the Father and God the Son, not that that would be wrong, but rather, who is our great God and Savior? Our great God and Savior linked together is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Some people, in their superficial understanding of the Bible, say, well, the Bible never comes right out and says that Jesus is God. Well, it sure seems to me pretty clearly that that's what Paul is doing here. And I think the ESV translation supports that. We are waiting for the glory of our great God, who is Jesus Christ and our great Savior, Who is Jesus Christ? Oh, friends, let us be those who wait eagerly and joyfully for him in our troubled world. So we've considered two questions. Why should we live a godly life? And the answer is the grace of God has appeared. How are we to live? We're to live in those three ways that we've been trained to live and what we renounce and practice and wait for. And then finally, and I think anyone, and I know you, have sought to live godly lives. And as one of the Puritans says, it's swimming upstream all the way to heaven, isn't it? It's against the grain. It's against the currents. It's against the culture. The whole way, this world, as another said, is no friend to grace. So we have to ask the question, where does the power to live a godly life come from? Do we rely on our own self-effort and discipline? I believe in spiritual disciplines. I think it's great to read the Bible and pray every day and read the Bible and pray with your families and go to church and use the means of grace. I believe in all of that. But where does the power to live the godly life come from? Let us never forget that it comes from, From the gospel. Paul's teaching, whether it's ethical or moral or eschatological or whatever it is, Paul's uh, teaching never strays from the gospel. It's always rooted in the gospel, and it always comes back to the gospel. That's where the power to live the godly life comes from. And let's look at some particulars in closing. Paul tells us in verse 14 that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us there's no hope of living a godly life apart from that that our Savior gave himself for us and two things stand out there first of all love the wonderful self-giving love of the Son of God for sinners and secondly not just love not to diminish love, but the costliness of that love. We need always be reminded of that, that he gave himself for us to be humiliated, to die on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. What a costly love it is. But notice the two results of this. He gave himself for us, To redeem us from all lawlessness. To deliver us from all of our lawlessness. And we remember that our catechism defines sin quite simply and profoundly as lawlessness. That's what sin is. And the Son of God comes to give himself for us, to deliver us from lawlessness. That we might become, as it were, grateful grace-changed, law-abiding citizens of the kingdom of God. And he gives himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We cannot purify ourselves unaided. I know there are passages of Scripture which urge us to do that, but it's always in the context of the gospel. And we can only purify ourselves because Christ has given himself to purify us, a people for his own possession, a people who live for his glory, purity. Ivory snow, I remember that from my childhood. I think it was laundry detergent. And the advertising slogan for ivory snow was 99 and 99 100% pure. That is to say, when you buy ivory snow, that's what you get is ivory snow. And that's what purity is. It's a singleness. It's a God-devotedness. And I'm not at all suggesting perfection, that in this life somehow we will achieve that. But that is whither we are tending. That is where we should be going because Christ gave himself to to purify a people for himself. And notice, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. It's said twice, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I wanna underline the importance of this. We live in times where there is lots of discussion about identity and who we are. And some say, well, we can change our identity and we can reinvent ourselves and so on. This is a vitally important statement about the identity of God's people, and we should make a big deal out of this. Do you understand that as Christians? This, above all, is who you are. You are a people belonging to Jesus. You are a people for his own possession. You ought to greatly rejoice in that and remember that every day. Finally, his people, his godly people, his redeemed people, his grace-touched people in whom he has broken the power of reigning sin, as the hymn says, are zealous for good works. And may, again, grace and good works are not enemies, they're friends. Good works are rooted in grace. And may we be zealous for good works you were praying for persecuted Christians in Congo. I've been praying for persecuted Christians in Manipur, India, which is, this is India, this is far eastern India. Manipur is one of the states way in the far eastern India, near China and near Myanmar. And I had the privilege of going there three times back when I was a pastor to teach uh, pastors in the Presbyterian Church of India. And... Um, Recently, the last few months, and you never, you never hear about this in the Western media, Hindus have gone on a rampage in Manipur. And they have killed at least a thousand Christians and they've burned at least 300 Presbyterian churches to the ground. And it's partly religious, it's partly tribal, these conflicts, and it's a little better now. I keep in touch with a couple of the pastors over there. But All of this is to say, uh, the last email that I had from one of the pastors, Pastor Ken Tombing, said at the end of his email, but the ministries are continuing. Wait a minute, in the midst of persecution and your brothers and sisters are being murdered and your churches are being burned to the ground? Wait, what? The ministries are continuing. Wouldn't it be a temptation if and when outright persecution breaks upon us as American Christians, wouldn't it be so tempting to say, well, forget about ministry. We just need to survive. We need to run away and hide. We need to protect ourselves, don't we? But the ministries continue. And what wonderful ministries they have. There are many orphans in Manipur because of drugs, and because of um, drug-addicted parents and because of civil war. And so there are ministries to babies and to orphans. There's a Christian school that educates many of these orphans. There's a ministry to women who were formerly prostitutes and drug addicts that gives them workshops and gives them a way to make a living and, and, and support themselves rather than turning to drugs or prostitution. But I was very moved to read that, that the ministries continue. They sound to me like people who have been saved by the grace of God and are now zealous for good works. May that be true of us. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that we would not be as those who um, look in the mirror and go away uh, unchanged but that we would hold your word close to our hearts and put it into practice in our lives and inwardly digest this and live gratefully to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. words from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the